0: Once again, let's turn to Leviticus together, chapter 26 this morning, Leviticus chapter 26. Once again, it is a very lengthy chapter, so we won't read the entire chapter, at least at the beginning, but we will come through it together, portion by portion. We're coming this morning to the Penultimate chapter of Leviticus. I've always found penultimate to be a rather curious word. Penultimate means next to last, which doesn't seem to be something even worth mentioning. I mean, the ultimate, yeah. All right, there you've got something. The last seems rather significant, but next to last, eh? <laughs> And yet, in this case, it's worth mentioning that we're at the penultimate chapter of Leviticus. Because there is a sense in which chapter 26 is itself the last. It's not the last chapter of the book, but there is a finality to it. It is in regard to the Lord's teaching concerning worship And holy living, the last word, and that makes this chapter especially important for our Christian lives. The last verse of the chapter says this These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between Himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Sinai. That acts then as a bookend to what we find in the very first verse of Leviticus. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying. So verse 46 of Leviticus chapter 26 is referencing everything that we have seen from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 26, verse 45. In that sense, Leviticus 26 is both penultimate and ultimate. It wraps up the revelation made at the tent of meeting. In this chapter, the Lord sets before the people the choice between obedience and disobedience, and describes the consequences which will ensue in each case. If the people choose to obey, the consequences will be wonderful blessing. If they choose to disobey, like we've seen in Ezekiel, the consequences will be calamitous. But the Lord reveals that the people in the days to come will choose disobedience. We know that's the choice that they make. And their persistent disobedience will result in eventual exile from the land. The history of Israel proved that obviously God was right. That was his prophecy. That's exactly what happened. Although deserving of final annihilation, the Lord promised that in the exile of his people, he would finally bring them to repentance. He'd bring them to their senses. They would then be restored to the land and the blessings of God would flow once again. And indeed, that is what He did. Why did the Lord relent concerning His judgment? The passage ends with the Lord's last word on the matter. God's faithfulness to His promises incites Him to show grace to the repentant. And God hasn't changed. God is still ready and desirous to respond to the repentance of any who will come to Him in the recognition of their sin and the desire for forgiveness. God Himself actually changes the hearts of His people and He restores them. Now as we work our way through this passage, it conveniently falls into four units we might describe them as. The first is in verses 1 and 2, which refer to two crucial commands for uh, loyalty to God. The final unit is in verses 40 through 46 in which the Lord promises his loyalty in return to the Israelites. And those two bookends encircle the two middle units that dominate the chapter, verses 3 through 13, which describe the blessings of God, and verses 14 through 39, which describe the curses of God. So let's begin to look at this passage, portion by portion. In verses 1 and 2, we find the essence of worship laid out for us. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence, my sanctuary, I am the Lord God. Now, when we speak of the essence of a thing, we speak of that element which is its irreducible core. Here we have that expressed by the listing of two commandments found earlier in Exodus in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were the centerpiece of God's covenant with the people. He entered into this covenant there on Mount Sinai. The covenant included promised blessings, but also forewarned the covenant breakers of curses which would come upon them for not keeping the covenant. These two commandments are connected because they both concern the worship of God. What are these two commandments? First, a commandment regarding false worship. The second commandment in the covenant prohibited the making and the worshiping of idols. The worship of idols was universal in ancient religions. Typically, the ancient religions boasted of a pantheon of gods and goddesses. Theirs was an inclusive system. It would assimilate all the gods that they came to understand and know about into a pot of religious syncretism. This is why the pagan nations around Israel were more than willing to add Yahweh to their own pantheon. They had no problem looking at Yahweh as just another God. Israel, however, was quite different. Israel stood out among the nations as that one people who would not bow their knee to any other God but Yahweh. The Israelites were the odd ones Because they worshipped a God that could not be represented by a physical object. God is spirit and must be worshipped in spirit. The idea that any deity could be captured in wood or stone or metal is, the scripture tells us, the height of spiritual darkness and foolishness. That is what will always make the worship of the one true God out of step with the prevailing notion that the worship of God is legitimate as long as it's moral and sincere. The Scripture says no. Sincerity doesn't come into play, at least not at first. Worship must be true first. In the New Covenant, this manifests itself in the Christian claim That only through Christ can a person come to God. And of course the world hears that and it's unthinkable to them. It's been the source of great hostility and opposition toward biblical Christianity. It's said to be intolerant and prejudicial, the declaration of Scripture and Christian orthodoxy, that there is but one Savior, there is but one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. This itself cannot be tolerated by a world which has rejected even the idea of absolute truth. The clearest statement of this is Jesus' own words. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But elsewhere, the New Testament continues to make this abundantly clear. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Hard to rationalize that away. Paul says as well in 1 Timothy chapter 2 there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other. This has always been the orthodox scriptural teaching of the Christian church. Christ is the only way. This is why we are called upon to go into all the world and preach the gospel. If people could be saved because of their sincerity, there would be no need for that. So that's the first command referenced here in verse 1. The second is in verse 2, and that is true worship. There is false worship, and we're warned against that. In fact, the Lord gives us commands against false worship. But then he sets forth in verse 2 the command for true worship. You shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So we have the negative side of things and the positive side of things spoken of in terms here of Sabbath and reverence for the sanctuary. Reverence means to stand in awe. It's something that church could use more of today. To understand who God is and stand in awe of Him. The word occurs only three times in the entire book of Leviticus and each time it is tied to the observance of Sabbath. The point is that God is to be honored in His people's obedience. We show reverence to God, not only when we come together in a reverent fashion, not only when we worship Him with reverence, but as we live our lives in obedience to Him, which flows out of reverence. Why do I want to be obedient to my Heavenly Father? Because I revere Him. It is much more difficult to disobey one whom you revere. In particular, God speaks of His Sabbaths and His sanctuary here. Note that you shall keep my Sabbath, you reverence my sanctuary not the sabbath my sabbath god once again puts himself at the center of everything this isn't just some bare command that god arbitrarily places upon his people it has to do with who he is he is lord he is creator. He is sovereign master. The sabbaths although we're told elsewhere in scripture that it is the sabbath was made for man, God says ultimately it's mine. You remember what we said about the land God was bringing his people into. It's not their land. They're just leasing it. The land belongs to God. And God blesses His people with the land. Likewise, God blessed His old covenant people with the Sabbath. But it was His Sabbath. He never relinquished ownership. Likewise, the sanctuary. These are things which set apart the God of Israel from all the other gods. His Sabbath and His sanctuary are His alone. And they, like He, must be honored and they are honored by following His commands. You'll remember in chapter 25, we read of the call for the people to honor the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. Chapter 26 is building on that. Here the Lord calls for the people to observe His Sabbaths, which would include the two just mentioned and the weekly Sabbath. The Sabbath day was the sign of God's covenant with the Israelites. By keeping Sabbath, the Israelites were expressing in a very tangible way their surrender to the rule of God. It was their visible, weekly claim upon his promises. The mention of the sanctuary refers to the instructions that we have seen throughout Leviticus that pertain to that central place of worship for the people of Israel, that central place in the life of the community, the tent of meeting or the sanctuary was in the middle of the wilderness camp. The people would stop through their wanderings. They would set up camp and directly in the center, there would be the place of the tabernacle, and that symbolized the fact that God is at the center of Israel's identity. He and he alone was the one who united them into a nation, and who had redeemed them from bondage in Egypt. He alone was the one who was moving them to that land to which he had promised. He was the one who had made of them a nation, and out of that nation would come the Messiah out of that nation would come ultimate redemption, not just from physical bondage in Egypt, but from spiritual bondage to sin and Satan. The sanctuary symbolized all of that as it sat in the midst of the people. And the purity of that sanctuary was essential in the worship of the people. We've seen this over and over throughout Leviticus. And whenever we see something, we ought to pay attention. As you read through Scripture, when you see repetition, that's telling you something. We saw it this morning in Psalm 136. God's loving kindness endures forever. And over, and over, and over, and over again. And I hope that by the time Joe got to the end of that psalm. I hope you weren't tired of that yet. Because it is such a glorious truth. The loving kindness of God endures forever. And it is so important that we know this, that we understand this, that God gave us a psalm that repeats it time and time and time again. So that when life gets hard, that truth has been drilled into our heart and our brain. It doesn't matter what I'm experiencing in, in, in this moment, the loving kindness of God endures forever. So as we're reading through Leviticus, and we see this emphasis repeated over and over and over again, Concerning the necessary purity of the temple, the tabernacle, I should say at this point, we ought to pay attention. The tabernacle was not the only sanctuary in the ancient world. The pagan religions all had their own sanctuaries as well. But the sanctuary of Yahweh was different. The pagan nations knew their gods and goddesses by looking at clay and wood and stone, the idols that they had created as representatives of these gods. But to come into the sanctuary of Israel was to look in vain for those kinds of things. There were no idols in this sanctuary. There were no images in this sanctuary. The image of Yahweh was not seen in images. The image of Yahweh was seen in his people. As his people kept the commands regarding the sanctuary. As the commands of God to the priests for the worship of uh, Yahweh was faithfully carried out as the people obeyed the moral commands of God, set down in the law, they were exhibiting reverence for this God. They were showing forth who this God is and what He deserves as well as what He commands. As Christians, we know that the temple of the Lord today is not the same as it was then. There is no physical temple Whether the tabernacle or later the temple made, created by Solomon and then again by Herod, there is no such place. We are not called any longer to worship in a sanctuary such as the tabernacle or the temple. Now we understand, as the New Testament teaches us, Jesus is the temple. But you know what else the New Testament says about the temple? We are the temple. You and I, the corporate body of Christ, you as an individual who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, we are the temple of God. Because what is a tabernacle? What is a temple? It is a place where God's people meet with Him. And if we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, We're always meeting with God. We're always the temple. Now, God has promised his people that if they did what he says there in verses 1 and 2, blessing would be theirs. And that's the subject to which he turns in the next section of Leviticus chapter 26. He begins in verse 3 with the blessing of obedience. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then, then what? Then I shall give you rains in their seasons so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. That's where he starts. And then there's all kinds of other blessings that are to come. But notice, at this point, With Old Covenant Israel, as they're coming through the wilderness, right? Where are they now? They're in the desert. Not a lot of rain. There's no good, fertile ground. But God says, if you will be obedient to me, that's what you will have. Which gives them something that they can hold on to. Something by which they can judge whether they've been obedient or not. If rains come, and produce comes, and there's good harvest, well, that's going to be a response to their obedience. If there's a drought, then they better start looking at themselves and wondering what they have done. It was common in ancient covenants to list benefits, for the faithful observance of a covenant's stipulation. When nations entered into treaties, the great king promised benefits to the vassal king, the subordinate king who entered into the treaty with him. The most important requirement of the vassal was loyalty to the greater king who received tribute from the vassal. In the setting of biblical theology, the great king is the Lord. And his vassals under the Old Covenant were the twelve tribes of Israel. The Lord promised protection and provision for Israel. And the Israelites, in turn, promised loyalty. And that loyalty would be demonstrated through obedience and worship. And if they kept... They're part of the covenant. Then come the blessings. Rain, so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. That is, throughout the year, you're always going to have something to eat. We'll move from one season to another, but you'll always have something. Indeed, I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. But you will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. 5 of you will chase a 100, and a 100 of you will chase 10,000, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my souls will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people." I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves, and I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. That sounds like a good deal. Be obedient, be loyal, worship me properly, and I will take care of every need that you have. We refer to these things as blessings. It's a common term in the Old Testament. God had promised blessings specifically to the nation of Israel as they walked in obedience to him. But Abraham and his descendants were blessed by God, not for their own sake, but also so that they could be a witness to the nations. So the promise of blessing was not solely material. In, I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. And in that, that portion which we tend to just pass over relatively quickly because we're consumed with the physical blessings, in verse 12, we have the greatest blessing of all. God will be their God. And they will be his people. What are we always saying about heaven? What makes heaven so great? What makes heaven heaven? Why do we want to go to heaven? It's not because of all the material blessings, you know, mansions and streets of gold and so forth. It's because Jesus is there, it's because he's going to be our God and we're going to be his people and we're going to dwell with him forever. That's what makes heaven heaven. That's what makes it so great. That's why we, if our heart is in the right place, want to go there. Not just see heaven as an escape from hell, but as a destination. Jesus is there. I want to be with him. That's what verse 12 is saying. I will walk among you and be your God. I'll do all these other things for you. I'll send the rain. I'll give you great harvest. There will be plenty. In fact, you're going to have to work at eating up what you already have so that the new harvest can come in. But beyond all of that, you get me. That's God's And so we see all of these blessings listed. Seasonal rains producing dependable harvests. uh, Peace in the land. uh, Population increase. And ultimately God present with his people. We typically think of our God as a good God who provides for his people and that's particularly true as we're approaching Thanksgiving week. That's good and proper. There is recognition in the New Testament that there are material blessings as well as spiritual ones. But the ultimate blessing is that we know Him. That is always the case. But for disobedience, things aren't going to work out so well. There are curses for disobedience. Look at verses 14 and 15. If you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Again, something very common as we're moving through the first five books of Moses. The word curse doesn't actually occur here in Leviticus 26. But the catalog of punishments named in the text match those curses enumerated later on in Deuteronomy chapter 28. We first notice that much more is said about penalties than blessings. There's a lot more said about that. God wants to warn his people because God would prefer to bless them rather than curse them. And yet, we we see that the passage emphasizes the conditional nature of the penalties by the recurring use of the proposition if. If you do not obey me. If instead you reject my statutes. There is a responsibility. God's going to respond to his people. If you obey, blessing. If you disobey, curses. It's all up to them. Verse 18 says this, If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And we read that and we think, oh boy, that sounds pretty harsh. But it's not intended to be harsh. That verse is full of grace because there's forgiveness in that verse. There is the opportunity for repentance. If also, after these things, you do not obey me. If you failed to obey and the curses have come, then there's a choice. If you continue to disobey, it's going to get worse. But if you respond to the discipline and the judgment, If you repent, the implication here is it won't get worse, I'll give you blessing again. If also after these things you do not obey. Well, what if they do obey? And God is a God of forgiveness. God is a God of restoration. Come down with me to verse 33. You, however... I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. And once again, this is what we're seeing in Ezekiel, although many centuries previous to what we see in Ezekiel. Ezekiel and all the discussion of Judgment that we have seen in uh, Jeremiah as well, all this discussion of the exile, that's what verse 33 is. It's the prophecy, it's God telling them what would happen. And God, here's the great thing God was so gracious that he let it go century after century after century, and sent prophet after prophet after prophet, seeking to call the people back, trying to get them not to continue to disobey, but to turn from their disobedience so they could forgive them and bless them, but they would not have it. And so ultimately, after many, many centuries, verse 33 became reality. And God brought Babylon down and had them carried off into exile. And the cities became waste and the land became desolate. Now move this up to the New Covenant. How does this manifest itself under the New Covenant? Well, there are ways in which it does and there are ways in which it doesn't. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we are the remnant. We have nothing to fear from the judgment of God. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And yet God tells us, though he will not bring judgment upon us, he will bring discipline to us. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 compares Christian discipline to the discipline that children receive from their parents, and he concludes this way. God disciplines us for our good that we might share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is different from judgment because it has a different goal. It may look the same. God may bring judgment upon an unbeliever and he may bring discipline upon a believer and it may look very similar. But there's a different goal. The discipline of God is for our good, for our growth, so that we will become more like our Savior Jesus Christ. The discipline that we receive shows us that we are valued by God and that He cares for us. He does not condemn us, but He also does not neglect our spiritual training. Punishment is for those who stubbornly reject the gospel and die in their sins, but discipline is for those who are already a part of the family of God, who God desires grow into holiness. The Apostle Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 3. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now Paul's point in all of that is that we have no ability to keep the law just as Israel did not. But there is hope because Christ sent his son to keep the law for us. And if we will repent of our sin and trust in Christ, the righteousness, which belongs to Christ because He kept the law perfectly in His incarnation, is then applied to us. And in our justification, God declares that we stand righteous before Him. He takes that righteousness of Christ and He applies it to you. That is why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has already taken the condemnation upon Himself at the cross. There is no condemnation left to give if we are in union with Jesus Christ. There is only grace. There is only mercy. And part of that grace and mercy is the discipline. Because it is an act of grace that God takes His people where He finds them and transforms them into the image of His Son. And all of this happens, we're told, if repentance is present. Even for Israel, look at verse 40. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, jump down to verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. Repent, and God will receive you back. Repent, and God will restore. Repent, and God will bless. And that offer is made available here and now, all around the world, every moment of every day. The gospel is going forth, and God is giving that offer. Repent, and I will receive you. Repent, I will forgive you. Repent, I will bless you. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if someone will turn from their sin and turn from their effort at self-righteousness and trust only in Christ alone for their salvation... God will receive them. God will receive you. He will forgive you. And He will bless you. That's His desire. You need only come. Father, thank You. We look week after week at Your law. And week after week we find grace. We are so grateful, Father, for we are in need of grace. Above all else, we need grace, for we have no righteousness to offer You. We have done no works which please You. We can only come empty-handed, pleading with You for mercy in the name of Christ, knowing that You will provide it. Those of us who are in Christ, Father, we have experienced this. It is ours. And we desire that others know it as well, Father. Draw in those whom You will. May Your Spirit work to bring conviction and a love for the majesty of Jesus. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.